Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. I am Tim Masso with the car czar Alex Dykes. Alex, today we are discussing the advent of the Ford Mustang GTD and the relevance of halo cars generally. So for those who are living under a rock, what is the Mustang GTD? The Mustang GTD is the 300,000 horsepower, absolutely bonkers Mustang uh, with the dual clutch transmission, which a lot of folks thought might not make it back again. It's back and uh, and it's in the back because uh, Ford wanted to change the weight balance around a little bit. So it actually has the transmission kind of sort of in the trunk. Yeah, so it's an exciting concept because if you remember in years back when Volkswagen built a mid-engine W12-powered Golf or Aston Martin built a Signet actually powered by an Aston engine, uh, you know, we've seen these crazy experiments that have been one-offs over the years at shows, but this is different because Ford actually went back to the people who built the Ford GT, Multimatic, and they have commissioned the construction of a new Mustang that will be effectively a step even beyond what you can race on track carbon fiber body, inboard bell crank pushrod suspension, spool valves, eight-speed dual clutch, rear-mounted transaxle. There is no trunk. You open the trunk, you see differential coolers, all sorts of race-ready hardware. It will be $300,000, and it's going to be a very limited production piece that's faster than the on-track Mustang GTD that actually races in IMSA. That has about 500 horsepower. This is going to have over 800 with supercharging. Who's going to buy this thing? I would assume that it's the customer that bought the Mustang GT. Uh, sorry, the, I meant the Ford GT because, you know, lots of GTs going on at Ford here. But I think that's it's, it's really the spiritual successor to that while keeping the iconic Mustang name and having a halo for the Mustang brand. Uh, it's also going to be purchased by, I suppose, someone that thinks the Corvette is not bonkers enough. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because the Corvette has yet to hit its max bonkers. We've got a Zora coming somewhere that's going to be hybrid, all-wheel drive, basically everything you've seen so far, plus twin turbos and the hybrid system. So the Corvette hasn't reached uh, criticality. The Z06 Corvette is basically the road-going version of what you race on the track. The Roush-built Mustang GT4 that actually competes in IMSA GTD is actually going to be less exotic than this Multimatic job. So... That notwithstanding, let's just talk about halo cars generally and the purpose they serve. I'm not sure what the first halo car was, but it must have been darn close to the 1955 Chrysler C300, where you've got a Hemi engine, a brand new Virgil Exner styling, top of the line Imperial level pricing, and you've got hundreds of horsepower in a vehicle designed to bring you into a Chrysler showroom and not necessarily for the C300. So talk a little bit about halo cars through the years, and let's talk about whether they work. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I I wonder what the first halo car really was. Uh, if anybody has a particular opinion, you can always reach out to us. But you know, a quick search actually indicates that it might have been something along the lines of the Dodge Viper. Actually, that it was possibly that late, because Chrysler did sell quite a lot of three hundreds, and that was I mean, it was a volume vehicle for them. Uh, but halo cars have changed over the years. There once was this time where it was the Mustang uh, GT, sorry, Ford GT again. Sorry about the Mustang insertion in there. Uh, it's okay. These are mainstream vehicles. This yes. is not what we're normally doing. Yes. Uh, so Ford GT, arguably, I mean, well, not arguably, did come before the must uh, before the Viper. So Ford GT could have been that car, but it, somehow it wasn't considered a halo. I think because you did not find it in every dealer's lot. And Viper, you found one Viper at least at every Dodge dealer. Even if they didn't sell it, even if nobody bought it, every Dodge dealer had at least one Viper. So that way the kids could go, ooh, dad, I wanna go see the Viper, and they'd drag you to the Dodge dealer, and I don't know, maybe you'd buy a minivan. Um, that was the logic. I mean, I would say, um, yeah, I'm going to go with my C300 as maybe the first Halo car, possibly the 1971 De Tomaso Pantera, which was commissioned by Ford and then sold through Lincoln Mercury dealers. But I would define it just in terms of the opposite of a loss leader. A loss leader is something that brings people into stores to get a value, to get a bargain. And then the idea is that you, you suck up your losses on those sales because some of those people who come in will wind up something more expensive. So a halo, a halo car is like the opposite. You come in to see the crazy thing and then you buy a Dakota or a minivan or a Durango. 
Um, I think the Viper is a great example because in our lifetime, it's certain in my lifetime, certainly it is the standout example where they'll make a few hundred a year. It comes from its own plant, its own assembly line. It has no relevance to anything else in terms of platform. It's impractical, but it does build buzz around the brand. And I think if we're honest, 1990s Chrysler Corporation was probably the best styling era for Chrysler since the late 1950s. So the Viper was the harbinger of an interesting era, at least. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to an interesting thought to look up, because if I look back here at the sales numbers, uh, the C300 represented a reasonable percentage of that platform's sales. Uh, so I don't know if I could call that a halo car in that same way. Not in the same way that the Viper was, but maybe more in the way that a current halo trim is of a vehicle, like the Hellcat. Um, so halos have had many forms over the years. We've had the Viper, which there was the car that nobody really bought, sold in incredibly low numbers never made money, but was totally cool and could get you into the dealer. Now we have Halo trims, which the C300 probably would have been a, an example of where the model did make money. Like there's no way the C300 was a loss leader, et cetera, for Chrysler. It was a, oh, no, it was a trim leader. level, yeah, trim level of a widely produced car. They, they used engines, uh, massaged engines that were more or less production, et cetera, in the vehicle. And that's what we see with the Hellcat. We see variants of engines, variants of drivetrains that are used elsewhere in the lineup to increase the buzz around the model. I would say, interestingly, that's probably why we're seeing the Mustang GTD now rather than a next generation GT. Who knows, Ford might create one for the dedicated GT following that the Ford GT has. But the Mustang GTD kind of makes more sense because of what Chrysler did with the Hellcat. That was kind of an unusual twist and it really propelled that brand and that model forward for quite some time. Also highly profitable the entire time, unlike Viper, unlike SRT10, which were not profitable at any point in their existence. Now, I will say this. I think that the track record of a flagship car is very good. I, I look at a Hellcat as more of a flagship car. I look at the Halo car as mostly a loser through the years. And, and let me explain here. When I talk about Halo cars, I mean something like a Pantera, where it has almost no relevance to anything else in the showroom. It's going to sell in such small numbers that it doesn't make an economic impact. And particularly when you can show that the manufacturer did not prosper while the vehicle was being sold, there's a powerful argument that it doesn't work. So the classic example would be the first modern day Ford GT, which came out for 2005. And in 2006, Ford lost $12.7 billion. They mortgaged everything. They expanded their line of credit or credit credit access up to $25 billion. Uh, people talk about how Ford was like, you know, the one that didn't go under during the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. And that's because they fell over and hit, you know, basically rock bottom when you could still take out a loan without the government as the guarantor. So Ford was actually in really awful shape through the mid 2000s. And I wouldn't argue that the Halo car in the form of the Ford GT or the Halo brand when they own, say, Aston Martin actually helped. I think you need a flagship car that's still tangibly tied to what you sell and priced to make money, which is why the Hellcat, I think, isn't a Halo vehicle, but it's a great flagship. Yeah. You, uh, the interesting part is if you talk to Stellantis, they consider Hellcat a halo vehicle in that way. Like they will use the term, which I mean, which does make sense actually. Well, no, it's, it's not a term that most manufacturers will necessarily use or they reserve it for specific things like NSX, LFA. Those are definite halos of those brands uh, in our lifetime, for instance. General Motors has oddly enough opted not to do very many halos over the years. I mean, they've had Hummer, et cetera, but that was a brand. They've had Corvette, which is not a halo in that same way because the volume of Corvette is astronomically large for a, a sports car. Like it, they sell a lot of Corvettes. Um, so it has that, that halo effect in the same way that a Hellcat does, but it's not, it's not that loss leader that a halo generally would be where we're talking about Viper that just burned through millions and millions of dollars of cash. Uh, the Chrysler Prowler, uh, the Plymouth Prowler, et cetera. Those, those were definite halo things. Yeah, I think for the hot minute that you could get both a Hellcat and a Viper, I think Stellantis or its predecessor company, Fiat Chrysler, would have discussed that as a halo car. I think 
it, to the extent that GM's ever had a Halo car, it would be something like the original LT5 powered Lotus engineered ZR1, where the car cost twice as much because you selected an engine package and where they did ultimately wind up selling just like a few hundred per year in, you know, 93, 94, 95 toward the end. That's, that's the closest thing. I think the Hummer EV could be considered a Halo because it is so much more expensive for the moment than anything else in the catalog it's selling in minuscule volumes part of that's production problems but i also think that if you ask gm in good faith is this the future of gm evs they would say no it's a super truck it's crazy so i think maybe this is the first halo product gm's had in a long time uh yeah it's tricky though of course because hummer most likely will be profitable long term because of the huge commonality with the other trucks same batteries same electric motors that are used in other trucks same electronics etc so the, the 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 typical halo status is difficult to assign there the the the, the funky unibody uh sorry actually no it wasn't unibody it was a body on frame the funky chevy retro truck that was based on the gmt 360 vehicles the oh, SSR. The SSR. yeah SSR. That's, that's like that's a Chevy Halo thing because that probably didn't make money uh, in the cost and the volume, etc. Um, the Ultium stuff is a little bit difficult to tell at the moment. We won't know probably for a while, but the fact that it's being sold at a GMC dealer rather than a Hummer dealer, all of that kind of fits in there. Uh, the original Hummer, obviously the H1, the actual military Hummer, was definitely a Halo for that brand. I, I think with the the Hummer EV, the ultimate measure of its success is going to be the attitudes it changes. Like the EV early adopters, that tree has been picked bare. I think at this point, the, you know, one ton diesel dually lifted pickup guys, if they come over to the AV, EV side, it's going to be stuff like the Hummer. But I really think in the long run, the Hummer's success is going to be defined in terms of relaunching a sub brand, because I do think at the end of the day, there will be cheaper, smaller Hummers just like there were H2s and H3s, and there was going to be an H4 before the brand was phased out. So I think that's kind of that, that's kind of where we're going with that. But I think at the end of the day, if the, if the Halo vehicle is not relevant to what you're selling now or will sell in the future, I think ultimately it fails as a gambit. And I, I know you and I seem to have a little bit of disagreement between what's a flagship and what's a Halo car. But remember that the 2019 Lincoln Continental Coach Door sold out. That did not save mm -hmm. Lincoln cars. Right. And that's and that's kind of the, the tricky thing is that there's no there's no hard and fast, you know, true definition of what a halo car is, at least not one that I could find. So I guess uh, then if you're watching this on YouTube, let us know in the comments below, are halo cars just cool or do they actually have some benefit to their manufacturers? Because everything from the Pantera to the Coach Door Lincoln to the BMW i8, I really struggle to see how it built the brand or helped mm -hmm. even in the short term. Um, but, you know, that is an open question. I think the Mustang GTD will be successful. I think it will make money. I think it will be an image builder. And I think it's better not even to think of it as a Mustang. It's a Mustang in the same sense as a Trans Am car or NASCAR stocker is based on anything you see on the road. This is a Le Mans prototype with a front engine that looks like a Mustang. Exactly. And, you know, but that's, it, it sort of makes sense for the Mustang brand, just like the Mach-E G, you know, the Mach-E thing is not a, really a Mustang, Mach-E GT. Uh, I guess it's the same, if you can, if you can call that a Mustang, then yeah, you can call this a Mustang. Although this is closer to the Mustang ethos than a, a 5,000 pound SUV with a battery and skinny tires. You know, the one thing I don't like about the new GTD is it doesn't know whether it wants to be a road racer or a muscle car. Because, look, I'm, I'm totally into this idea of like an all-carbon bodied, pushrod suspension, spool valve, transaxle Mustang race car. But the actual GT4 car does not have a big supercharged engine. Uh, you know, I would have been more excited if they said, look, we're going to take a thousand pounds out of a dark horse and do whatever it takes to make that happen. And then we are going to fit the highest rip roaring 9,000 RPM, you know, naturally aspirated V8 engine we can build. A supercharger is a lazy way to make power. There's a reason no race car today except a dragster uses a supercharger. It's heavy. It creates a lot of heat. It sucks up a lot of horsepower for the horsepower it creates. So it's not a net gain like a turbocharger. There's a reason no one uses hardware like that for a race that lasts more than a few seconds. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good point, but superchargers are, are excellent in low speed applications. So if, if you're, if you're doing a lot of, if you need instant torque, that is the way to do it. 
Cooling is obviously the tricky part. Uh, you know, we don't know what their cooling strategy is, whether they've been able to mitigate that or not. Then obviously it's cost at that point. It's That's the main reason that you do it. Yeah, I know there's probably all sorts of regulatory reasons they couldn't just give us like a seven liter voodoo engine. I'm sure there are reasons. But at the end of the day, they did set themselves a starting price of $300,000 with more headroom to add options. And believe it or not, there are options. So I feel like they could have found a way to do this naturally aspirated. I think the most exciting thing about the Corvette Z06 right now is that it's naturally aspirated. You start adding hybridization and forced induction, and it's like, yeah, sure, whatever, 800, 900, 1,000 horsepower. You can get a Dodge now that has 1,000 horsepower, speaking of the Challenger. I feel like this would have been more impressive if Ford had made it more like a race car and less like a GT500. I mean, 1,000 is the new 700 in a way, so... I, get applying more than a thousand horsepower is going to be tricky. So, the the horsepower figures I think are just about right. It's it's more about how you use it in this kind of vehicle and and how it's going to feel out on the track, etc. Than the raw horsepower figure. I am happy though that a company with a CEO who races actually went out and turned this thing into a reality. This is a lot of fun. Like I said, there have been one-offs by brands that did stuff like this, but they were either not road legal or they were dead ends. This is genuinely cool. And I'm actually happy that Ford did this instead of another supercar. Cause I think building the Mustang legacy is always neat when you can build it in new ways, despite its age, the back catalog of cars, all the legends we've already got. This is a genuinely new chapter, whereas I feel like the Ford GT is just incrementalism. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Ford GT will resurrect one day. Uh, so there's going to be another one. We don't know when, we don't know how, etc. But you can bet that this, this may be a momentary spiritual successor, but it's not going to be the replacement for a Ford GT. Now, I agree with you. So I am happy to live in a world where halo cars exist, whether they make sense or not. Now, we talked about the Hummer, which is sort of an emerging sub-brand of GMC, but if you look at the auto industry over the last 15 years, 20 years even, let's go back to the early 2000s, the phase-out of extraneous brands, fewer brands, and more volume from fewer brands has been the trend. Look at GM, look at Ford, look at Toyota even admitting it was wrong with Scion. Fewer brands with better volume and more focus. And yet here we are with Jaguar Land Rover, not known for excellence in marketing. They've decided they need not one, but four sub-brands to make this work. Their sales are in the dumpster on the Jaguar side. Land Rover seems to sell well in an SUV-centric era. What is this gonna change? It's unclear what the rationale behind this is. Uh, although, to be honest, sub-brands have always existed there ever since Range Rover came on the scene. So Land Rover's admitting that Range Rover is kind of a thing on its own sort of makes sense from a labeling perspective rather than it being a Land Rover, Range Rover autobiography, you know, SV plus whatever, the longest name in history. Uh, then you can actually have a shorter name and it's now just a Range Rover. Uh, that sort of makes sense because that's what people called them anyway. I don't know that many people that just want to call their Defender just a Defender rather than a Land Rover Defender. That is a little bit weirder to me. Yeah, so here's the problem. This is a company that has an extremely sick brand in Jaguar. And making Jaguar a sub-brand doesn't really change anything because it's almost like standing pat. The bigger question is why we need separate sub-brands for Defender, Range Rover, and Discovery, given that their dealer base is already small and these vehicles are all going to wind up more or less in the same showroom on the same dealer lot. This is almost like when you had Geo being sold right alongside Chevrolet in the 1990s, or frankly, like pre-war GM, where Pontiac had Oakland, Oldsmobile had Viking, Buick had Marquette and Cadillac had LaSalle, and these were like tenant brands of the main brands, and they all sold next to each other. Even GM, at its brand craziest, realized this was fruitless. Yeah, it's, it's going to be tricky because it doesn't really seem like there's actually going to be a substantive change. And we really shouldn't include Jaguar in here because Jaguar just stayed Jaguar. They didn't, they didn't sub-brand anything. It's the same as it was before. Um, but the separation of Land Rover into separate brands... Nothing's going to change on a marketing perspective other than the Land Rover icon now being deleted. Uh, the dealership side of things, it doesn't sound like anything's going to change there either because most of those dealers were, you know, 
San Jose British Motors or Houston British Motors, et cetera, and they sold the various brands there. So nothing's truly going to change. They'll, all the models will still exist. Uh, no region is getting extra models or deleting models because of this, this shuffle around. So I'm not clear what it really does for them, but it doesn't really detract from anything. Maybe it gives them free press coverage because now we're talking about it when nothing actually happened. Um, well, talking about it in sort of a cynical and critical way. Like they say sometimes no publicity is bad publicity, but this is a company that concretely disproves that, especially on the Jaguar side. Yeah, but it, this this really is not a Jaguar story though, which is kind of the weird part. It's like you're, fo you're focused on the Jaguar part, but Jaguar's not even a part of this split. And the brands that are part of the split are actually all doing well. So it's, well, that's why I don't understand because yeah. it doesn't help their weakness and it doesn't it doesn't supplement their strength. Like if you look at sales charts, okay, so both of them rebuilt from the financial crisis. Uh, Land Rover hit its sales peak in 2019, came very, very close to matching that number in 2021. Jaguar actually peaked in 2017. And even before the pandemic, it was in free fall. So I would be more interested in knowing what these guys are doing to fix Jaguar and also, frankly, differentiate it in an era when both Jaguar and Land Rover sell SUVs. Because the one thing you could always say about Jaguar was luxury cars. But if they're both selling SUVs, why wouldn't you buy the thing that's either a Land Rover, a Range Rover, a Discovery or a Defender? The answer here supposedly was they already considered Range Rover a separate brand. So that's so because they're 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 just the three split offs on the Land Rover side, Range Rover, Discovery and Defender. So they're saying that uh, Range Rover was already a sub brand. So no, no change there. It was just the separation of Land Rover, Defender and Discovery. Those three things there, they claim to give them extra visibility. So I, I think like there is no company that proves more than Land Rover that all publicity is not good publicity. Because normally when we talk about Land Rover, we talk about one of two things. How cool the Defender is and how many times it's been in the shop. And I hate to say that, but they are not known for mechanical excellence or reliability out of warranty. I feel like that's a bigger problem they've got to solve. They would be better served by going with like a Hyundai Kia style 10 year bumper to bumper warranty than splitting these things up. Because at the end of the day, if your Range Rover Carmel edition is being sold out of the same showroom as a Discovery Sport, what have you really achieved? They will be supposedly semi-separated. So the same dealer footprint, but they're gonna reorganize the showroom floor. Not that this makes a huge difference, but they're gonna reorganize the showroom floor, have the Range Rovers over here, the Defenders over there, the Discoveries in the middle, something along those lines. Uh, you know, they can play with it if they want. Their sales have gone from 20,000 a year in 2008 to pre-pandemic of 90,000. So in just in North in the U.S. alone, rather. So you know, Land Rover is fine. They're not, it's. Oh, they're fine. If, if, this, if this works as far as a marketing strategy and more people buy Land Rovers because of it, then they've won. We, and I don't see this as stopping anybody. I don't actually see any customers going, well, I'm not going to go to the Land Rover dealer because the Land Rover dealer doesn't exist anymore. Now it's a Defender dealer. No, I don't see it stopping anyone, but I also don't see it incentivizing anyone. Like, I doubt it will be even as distinct as the break between the mini showroom and the BMW showroom at your local dealer. This will just be like different parts of the showroom. And who knows, maybe they'll have like washi paper or something to separate it. I don't know. It could, it's, it, there, there's a potential that it could assist Range Rover because Range Rover has found themselves now competing in a world where we have uh, Rolls Royce and Bentley SUVs. And the long, the long standing uh, buyer for a Range Rover had been someone that owned a Rolls Royce or a Bentley and they need something SUV ish. So that's why you buy the Range Rover to go with it. And that's part of why Range Rover has had you know, progressively more and more and more expensive versions of Range Rover because they need to recapture that business. And I could see not wanting a Land Rover logo on something that's $300,000, you know, that, but the split was already fairly firm there. And so I guess once you've split that off, then why not cut the rest in half? That seems to be the logic. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that Range Rover definitely has stepped up. I think that's the one odd man out in all of this, because you do have those Range Rovers that are fully customizable, $300,000. We're not quite talking Cullen money, but 
give it one more generation and we might be talking Cullen and money. And you got to plan one generation ahead if you want to sell that kind of vehicle. And I can see wanting to separate it out. The Bentayga, the Aston Martin DBX, uh, Maybach level GLSs, like that sort of thing. Yeah, that is the Range Rover's world now. And I think that it's perfectly legit to maybe want to create some space there in the same sense that BMW wants to create some space for Rolls Royce. Um, we shall see. I think the, the most interesting question is what do they do with the rest of the pieces? Land Rover and its tenant brands have not been problems. Jaguar is a big problem. And the reputation yeah. for mechanical integrity is a big problem. But that's but for I, I, I would argue that that actually is not a problem because their sales don't indicate that. Their reliability has improved, but it's improved only at the same pace that average reliability has improved in North America. So they're still at the bottom of the pile, but your 2023 Range Rover is going to be more reliable than your 1984 Range Rover. The, the numbers don't dispute that. Those oh, are no. just yeah. hard facts. Like, right. So, and the delta between unreliable and reliable in North America has never been smaller. So the, the number of problems the average customer will have in the first few years of ownership, which is the only years that the first buyer will ever own their Range Rover or Land Rover or Mercedes or BMW, et cetera, the average customer of these vehicles is leasing them. They're hanging out for three years and then they're gone. They're someone else's problem. So the reality is there's going to be very little daylight in terms of real world reliability between a Maybach and a Range Rover. And the person that's buying either of those vehicles does not care about reliability. That is not their leading thing. Uh, they're after brand, they're after the opulence, they're after the customization, they're after the look. Um, it's, that's a, I mean, that's just the way that that is. So it, it's, it's such an odd thing in that way because some, some in the industry and the regular consumers, when you, when you and I are going out and buying a vehicle, because clearly we can't afford a Range Rover, because not everybody is subscribing and, uh, you know, yeah. hitting those buttons down there. At any rate, um, so, the, you know, the plebes, us included, we're worried about reliability and what's that going to cost to keep on the road. If you're buying a $300,000 car, there's no way that that is a major concern to you because you're hardly ever driving the damn thing either. So it's like these things get very few miles, not, a, not really a rational problem. Jaguar sales, that's a trickier thing because Jaguar sales, when you really look at their lineup and their sales figures over time, they were always a very small company and their sales have tracked the plunge in sedan sales and they didn't have an SUV to come up with any, to, to compensate for this. So if you look at E-Class sales, S-Class sales, 7 Series sales, et cetera, they're all in the toilet. But they now have GLEs and they have X5s, et cetera. And with Jaguar, it was always the funky brand split that caused Jaguar to not have an SUV. The answer had always been, we do have SUVs. They're called Land Rovers. They're on that side of the showroom. You want a sedan? It's over here. You want an SUV? It's called Land Rover. It's over there. But... Clearly, that means that Jaguar is probably going to fade into the future if it doesn't become an SUV brand somehow. But then what's the point when you've already got the others? So that's well, not changing. You're, you're absolutely right about that. And I thought that maybe Jaguar had a window of opportunity and a real ray of hope with the I-Pace. And this sort of transitions us to that topic because... It was a shocker. I saw it at the Los Angeles Auto Show in 2014 when it first debuted as a concept, and it was everything that every other crossover wasn't. Low, slung, athletic, taut. It looked like a design direction for the entire Jaguar brand, and possibly a way for Jaguar to maybe define itself as the maker of crossovers that are more car-oriented and performance-oriented. And I didn't just think it was going to set the direction for their EVs. I thought everything in the Jaguar lineup as they move towards, you know, quote, trucks would take cues from this thing. And it turned out to be predictive in zero ways. There is no other Jaguar built on this architecture. It's not the future of Jaguar SUV design. We've seen enough F paces and E paces and redesigns to know that. And it's not even going to be the future of Jaguar EVs as we're here and now in 2025. It's going to bite it with no success or do. I mean, it sort of made sense because it they gave it a whirl. Uh, it turns out no one wants a Jaguar SUV, by the way. So whether it's an I pace or an F pace or an E pace, they've They've given them all the old college try, didn't work. Um, turns out, if you're buying a SUV, 
and you go to the British dealer, which represents basically Land Rover and Jaguars, um, then you want an SUV, you buy the, the real SUV. It turns out that's what happens time after time after time. So nobody wanted the F-Pace because there was a Velar there and everybody bought the Velar instead. Nobody wanted the E-Pace because there was the Evoque there and they bought that instead. Um, it, and it's, it was predictable because the brand was so steeped in sedans that what's the point anymore? I-Pace fell into that same trap as well. It was this awkward, uh, you know, useless crossover thing with some ground clearance, but it, it, it wasn't a great SUV. It was tiny inside, it was cramped, and it turns out no one wanted a tiny cramped thing with some extra ground clearance. Yeah, it is smaller than it looks. Like when you see it in pictures, it looks impossibly long and low and wide. And I guess that's all to the credit of Ian Callum and the people who drew it up. Uh, but it is like a compact crossover SUV. I I think it was the first crossover, maybe since the original Cadillac SRX, that looked genuinely athletic. Like it was ready to lunge forward or hit a corner or do something other than just you know, take mom and the kids to soccer. Like it was really exciting. And even for all of its flaws and in infotainment and range, you know, there was a gasometer on the dashboard that didn't bear any resemblance to reality in terms of how far it would go. They did a lot of work upgrading it in 2022. The PV Pro infotainment system, Alexa integration, a much faster charger, a much more accurate range predictor, and over the air that gave you a bit more range. It's a much better vehicle now than it was then. 400 horsepower, 500 pound-feet of torque, all-wheel drive, and it it's it drives like an EV, which is to say all of the weight's down low and it's fairly neutral, but it's a lot more interesting to drive than, say, uh, I don't know, VW ID4 or an Audi e-tron. There's still some passion in the I-Pace, and I feel that like that's a loss. There was, I mean, initially at the beginning, there were some range issues. There was some software problems, um, just functionality that didn't exist. But we can't underscore how tiny it is. A Mercedes-Benz GLB, or sorry, EQB, is bigger than the I-Pace on the outside. And it's yep. much bigger on the inside. On the inside, the I-Pace is smaller than an XC40 recharge. So it's not a big thing at all. And the XC40 recharge is a solid subcompact, not even a compact uh, vehicle. So, um, you know, it was, it was interesting, but it was logical that it didn't sell. And also... For Jaguar, it was built by Magna Steer, so it wasn't even built by Jaguar, which was a different kind of financial problem for them. So uh, Jaguar doesn't build EVs in-house. They haven't so far. The, theoretically, the, the new XJ was supposed to be the first full EV. Now it's going to be the first uh, Range Rover EV. But the I-Pace was built by Magna Steer in Germany. Or, sorry, yeah, Austria, this, actually. Yeah, it, well, you know, it's the greater German, the greater Deutschland. Um, so... It's important to remember that the I-Pace was built by Magnesteer, and Magnesteer actually did an incredible thing by maybe demonstrating the potential of the platform. They built a demonstrator that had hundreds more miles, hundreds less pounds, improved performance, improved charging speed. Everything about it was tuned up to the point where I thought maybe this is a preview of like an I-Pace R or even something like a successor to Project 8. And Jaguar just didn't do very much to develop the platform or market it. For eight consecutive quarters, sales have dropped. Year on year for the second quarter, I-Pace sales are down 38%. And that's down 38% from pathetic. So that's really saying something. It was not an effectively marketed vehicle. And if you have something that looks that good, that had that kind of buzz on launch, it brings into question whether Jaguar is really in a position to effectively market anything it makes and whether or not maybe it needs a clean house in its marketing department and its ad agency because they blew an opportunity to be genuinely cool. They were out ahead of every European automaker and luxury maker with an EV and just being first should have carried some value. It carried a little bit. The problem also is that it uh, Jaguar styling alienated their customer base. So the, the, the customer base that was still interested in the Jaguar, when they started redesigning things to look modern, and the, the XJ went first and got a very clean sheet modern redesign as far as the styling goes, sales fell because their customers didn't like it. And then they kept going with this design language that maybe you'd liked, but you're not a Jaguar shopper. When was the last time you bought a brand new Jaguar? Well, the last time I was the last time you bought a Jaguar? 
Yeah. When was the last time I bought a new car? Never. Um, but but um, so that's the yeah. problem. And so you're you're designing a car for the people that actually buy the car, and generally that that works well for some car companies. Clearly, it's working well for Land Rover, for instance. Like the people that are buying Land Rovers, they like it or they don't care, and they're still buying them. The Jaguar side of this thing did not like the modern redesign, and that and the I-Pace was part of this problem in a way. If it had been an electric XJ that looked like an old man's car, probably would have been fine. You know, I have owned Jaguars before, and I would have I would have been more interested in an I-Pace that looked like a Jag. It looked like a spaceship. I was not interested because it's not a Jag. If you want a spaceship, get some other spaceship. Then at that point, why? The, the, the core reason for buying a Jag was oodles of wood, oodles of leather, wrapped in some sort of classic shape um, that, that you could take to the country club kind of a thing. And none of that existed in the I-Pace. So it was a flop as a Jag was the problem. The problem is those old school guys weren't buying enough Jaguars because in 2003, when the X300 XJ became the X350 with an all aluminum monocoque that was genuinely forward looking, it looked just like the old car and so people didn't respond. So fast forward to the X351 now, we're going to go with an avant-garde look. We're going to go with something really bold in 2010. We're going to go with a car that looks like no Jaguar, and people didn't respond to that either. So you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, these these fusty old great pond types who like the old Jaguar, they're not in the market anymore. And the people who want a more youthful, innovative look, they don't respond when Jaguar offers that, either in the car form or in the SUV form with the I-Pace. So I'm almost wondering if Jaguar should just think, okay, look, the Range Rover is now a quarter million dollar vehicle. There is a market for exclusive luxury. Let's just focus on quarter million dollar cars. Let's go after Bentley. Let's sell in that price range. And let's just give up on the idea that we're going to sell tens of thousands of Jaguars each year as a BMW or Mercedes or Audi alternative. That's clearly beyond reach. I think just prestige cars and low volume might be the only solution here. And that's, I mean, that's, and that's really been Jaguar's goal was to try and, and, and be that higher priced option because they were always more expensive than the entry level competition. Um, you know, the interesting thing though, is that back in 2010, when they redesigned it to have the more modern look, that generation never sold as well as the, as the generation that looked old, even though it was actually closely related. So 2005, when the, the all aluminum XJ came on the scene, uh, but looked like the classic Jag, that was the best selling era for XJs in quite some time. They sold uh, two to 10 times the number of XJs per year in that generation than they did the last look that it had. Well, that was also coming off an era when Ford invested hugely in the brand. Like the difference between Jaguar in 1988 and Jaguar in 2003, quantum leaps. You know, you talk about reliability getting better compared to what people had to deal with in the 80s with jaguars 2003 was a walk in the park the dealer network expanded it was part of ford's premium auto group back in the jacques nasser era uh it was genuinely going places and you know they tried things that didn't work they tried uh you know going after the three series with a mondeo platform okay maybe worth trying once so they tried going down market um they tried you know that was the x type they tried going way up market with, you know, various kinds of supercharged sedans and coupes. Um, the XK, you know, RS and XK RS GT were suddenly playing in a place where, you know, the Porsche 911 GT3 and GT3 RS were playing and that didn't work out. And then they had one Hail Mary that was supposed to be a reset for the brand in the I-Pace, but then they had a backup in the next generation XJ, which was canceled in 2021. And that was going to be like their Lucid Air. That was going to be like their Tesla Model S Plaid. It was going to be a high-end EV car. And they decided they didn't want to go in that direction. So what does the EV future look like for Jaguar at this point if it's neither the I-Pace nor sedans? It's a tricky question because sedans just aren't selling. So... You know, it's like if we look at the at the sales trajectory of like a BMW 7 Series, we see actually something quite similar. The 7 Series had its best sales year looking down this list. 2002 was its best sales year uh, in any sort of recent memory. And this last generation of the 7 Series, which I think is fantastic, barely moved the needle in sales. Uh, they are less than half of where they used to be. 
And when you look at the Jaguar trajectory, the, the XJ trajectory, uh, you know, its sales actually does, it's not that far off 7 Series. There was definitely a drop when they went with the, the redesign that didn't look like a Jaguar anymore and they lost some customers. But those customers had by and large already been moving to SUVs. So when you take, when you take a look at Model S sales, Model S is not selling well either. You know, the S, S is, it's not like S and Loose Air are, 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 you know, really moving anything. The only, only sedan that's had a notable increase in sales, uh, well, actually, and we can't even say that because it didn't exist before, would be the Model 3. Model 3 came out of the gate, sold a lot because it was electric, it was efficient. But the moment they could build more Model Ys than Model 3s, guess which one's selling better? Yeah, well, that's the lesson there. If you're going to do a car, do a car that shares a platform with a, a quote, truck. Not that any of these things are truck by truck guy definitions, but if you're going to do an EQS, have an EQS SUV. If you're going to do a Model 3, have a Model Y. And I think that the next generation XJ, if they wanted to salvage something, they should have built a super high-end EV crossover out of it. I don't know if they've kept any of that underlying engineering. I would imagine the powertrain architecture at the very least should translate to something that they, they do later. Yeah. Uh, most, logically, have... most logically, battery and electrical architecture is going to be some form or another recycled or, or inform the full electric Range Rover. So it's probably not an entire loss because the electric Jaguar was built on the same platform that Jaguar Land Rover uses for all sorts of other things. Um, but killing it probably was sensible because you, you bring the XJ on the scene. How many are you going to sell? 2,000 a year? 1,000 a year? Um, that just doesn't make sense to have all the stamping and all the tooling and everything else to actually make it happen. It fills me with sadness that it didn't happen. But unless it's going to be 1,000 units at $300,000 a year, it doesn't make sense. Or $300,000 a pop, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, so I think that's just that's just unfortunately the the problem with Jaguar. It's a Rubik's cube that may have no solution. It's a Rubik's cube off of which all of the stickers have been removed, and there's literally no way to solve it now. Um, so, to be continued. But I do think ultimately supercars and super sedans take it take it to the upper echelon of British car making right now, where the likes of Aston and Bentley and Rolls are playing, and try to rally the troops there. And the question for that would be: Does Tata have enough money to make that happen? Because that's the side question we haven't covered: Is does does uh, does you know the uh, the corporate daddy uh, actually have that kind of cash? Geely does. Like Geely, clearly, if Geely had owned this thing, there could be that thing. But with Tata as the owner, does Tata have the cash to make Jaguar Land Rover anything other than they are? No, they will not invest the way Ford invested in the 90s and the 2000s. I, I will say this, though. Um, it will be interesting to see, but I'm glad I am not responsible for it. Uh, and I will say this. Frankly, I love Jaguar, and I don't want anyone who's listening to this to think that I am rooting for their demise. I just honestly don't know where they go from here. This is a problem beyond the scope of my understanding. And if they go into the quarter million dollar price range, probably beyond the scope of this program. So <laughs> moving on to matters of money, cash on the hood and incentives. Oh, they talked a good game in the auto industry back in 2020, 21, and 22 about how this would never happen again. But anyone who's lived more than, I don't know, three generations of American minivan knows that in the end, there's cash on the hood. And not just for the usual Detroit 3, everyone is starting to offer incentives now. Oh, yeah. I mean, incentive spend is, is, is going to come back because it's the only way you can respond to to fluctuations in the market, high interest rates, et cetera. <clears throat> and for anybody that thinks that there's a manufacturer out there that doesn't do an incentive, uh, think about those discounted financing rates where even Tesla is doing it. You take a look at the lease rates or the finance rates on a modern Tesla, and they're not that's not market value interest. There's still a little bit of interest there. And now we still have effectively uh, incentives there because they do have some cash deals going here and there on a rare occasion, whether you want to consider the referral fees, the free supercharging, the low interest rates, the cheaper leases, whether you want to consider that an incentive or not, it falls into this same category. Yeah, and it's important to remember that this is being quantified and it is measurable. So JD Power, which is pretty good at tracking these things, and remember it's tracking averages, not specific models and brands, but now incentives for essentially July of this year, for the most recent records we've got, 3.9% of a vehicle sticker price that's up from 2% in 22. Now to actually 
put hard numbers on this. Right now, incentives are about $2,151 per vehicle, up from $908 last July. So this is ticking upward, and not just in mainstream vehicles. We've seen repricing, special lease deals, all sorts of incentives from the likes of Tesla, from the likes of Lucid. And the interesting thing with Tesla is that Tesla theoretically always does have a waiting list, but they also have vehicles that are not specifically on order from customers that are ready for delivery now. So they're in a weird place where they have both a waiting list, but they also have standing inventory. Yes. And, and it's interesting to see how Tesla will navigate this going forward because they did have a pretty big inventory buildup and then they fiddled with pricing, which is effectively Tesla's incentive program as well. Tesla will adjust their price many, many, many times a year. And when you look at this as a enthusiast, especially a Tesla enthusiast, not to you know dump on them or anything, but the Tesla enthusiast has this, this, this philosophy. It's like, oh, well, incentives are bad. We don't do incentives at Tesla, so that's why we're better. Well, Tesla has the same effective pricing changes throughout the year. They just do it by altering the advertised price up and down and up and down and up and down. And that's what other car companies do with their incentives. They just don't bother to change the listed price. They don't reprint stickers. They just fiddle with the incentives. But the highest end on incentives are, are in the luxury segment for sure right now. Uh, according to Cox Automotive in July, about 10% of average transaction price uh, on incentive spend on those vehicles. Um, Entry-level luxury cars are a little bit lower at around 7%. Uh, and EV is industry-wide around 6.7%. Yeah, and again, just to attach some hard numbers to that, with EVs right now for July of 2023, you're looking at about $4,000 in incentive per EV. So if you're looking at you know 2,151 for cars in general, if EVs are at $4,000, I don't know if that's just because the early adopters have all been scooped up and now you know, you're facing the burden of proof, or just because during the pandemic, automakers tended to focus on high profit, high margin, high priced EVs. And now the pendulum's swinging the other way. They've got all these vehicles and they're under pressure to sell them in an era when they can't sell literally everything they make at list price. So again, having expensive vehicles that they need to sell, they need to off commensurately larger incentives to make them sell. And the incentive spend is likely going to increase as interest rates put a squish on this. Uh, obviously having Historically low interest rates for quite some time really helped purchases of anything you have to borrow money for, whether that's a lease or a loan. Uh, that clearly is going to impact the affordability of vehicles. So we do see a relatively commensurate increase in incentive spend as the cost to borrow has gone has gone up to try and balance that that number out. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, subsidized interest rate deals. So even manufacturers that are not putting cash directly on the hood are certainly offering incentivized leases and incentivized finance deals. Yeah, without a doubt, we're also seeing somewhat longer dwelling periods on dealer lots. I think right now the average time a car spends on a dealer lots up to 36, 37, 38 days. And I think this time last year, it was 21, 22, 23. But it really does vary by manufacturer and by vehicle class. There are some huge disparities. There are some cars that are still flying off the lot. They can't keep them in stock. And then there are some cars that are selling very, very slowly. Hey, if you want to buy a Jaguar I-Pace, now would be a very good time. And dealer dwell time is not necessarily the best indicator of too many things other than than how quickly uh, they're going out the door because as far as health goes because having a longer dealer dwell time is not necessarily unhealthy you can have longer dealer dwell times in vehicles that are high volume because you need to have more selection available so f-150 silverado 1500 ram 1500 will generally have higher dealer dwell time because a customer is looking for a specific trim and there's so many different ways you can configure those vehicles that maybe you'll have a, a, a few that are hanging out on the lot because no one's interested in that particular combo and they're willing to wait for the combo that they want um, since they're different body styles, different engines, different axle ratios, et cetera. The configuration ability that just is not possible on anything outside a half-ton truck. But you'll also have uh, dealers and brands that will deliberately age inventory because based on their franchise agreement, you actually get a kickback extra. So the way for folks that don't understand how dealers often function, 
most dealer franchise agreements will have a clause in them where if the vehicle has hung out on the lot too long, then the dealer may have to start actually paying for the vehicle. Remember, dealers, when the inventory comes in, they haven't bought the vehicle yet. The manufacturer usually rides for a while on that. The manufacturer gets to count it as a sale. They haven't received the revenue yet because it's hanging out on a dealer lot. It gets sold. Theoretically, everybody gets paid along the chain. At some point in time, if the dealer's still hanging on to it too long, the dealer's going to have to start paying for the car. They have to start paying the manufacturer for it. But if it hangs out long enough, then the manufacturer has additional incentives and kickbacks to the dealer for how long the car has hung out on the lot. So some especially larger car dealers will definitely have a back lot where inventory is going to age, quote unquote, so that way you can let the car hang out there until you get the kickback. Then you move it to front of lot, then you get rid of it because then you can make more money. Yeah, and this is important, especially with the the half-ton trucks, you mentioned that. I'm glad you did mention it because they exist in their own world. When Toyota first got into the full-size truck game with the Tundra back in 2009, they were shocked that people wouldn't buy Tundras the way they bought Camrys and Corollas. They have popularly optioned vehicles, and that's the Toyota way. They're on the lot. You come, you see the one that's closest to what you want, popularly optioned, and you buy it there. And of course, they tried to do that with the Tundra, and they were shocked when people came to the lot and said, I have an excruciatingly specific idea of what I want my truck to be. And so you're absolutely right about this class of vehicle in general sitting longer. That doesn't mean that there isn't a waiting list if you want to put in a factory order. It's a little bit in some ways like the Teslas, where you can take one from inventory and maybe get a good deal. But if you want to get it exactly as you please, you're going to have to stand in line. So you've got both a wait list and cars aging on the lot at the same time. Mm -hmm. And for those that aren't familiar that are listening to this outside the United States, the whole inventory thing seems totally bonkers because in most of the world, cars tend to be ordered much more commonly than buying off a lot. So generally speaking, the majority of volume in Europe is a vehicle that is ordered, not one that was purchased off the lot. Dealers will keep very small inventories, uh, whereas here we keep very large inventories because it's completely the opposite percentage of things. Here it's fairly rare uh, to do a actual factory order. More often than not, you'll go in looking for a specific configuration and the dealer will try and do an inventory search because there's so much inventory across the US that they will hunt for a car that's close by that they can trade and blah, blah, blah. But actually getting a order from the factory is quite rare in the US. And that's definitely important to remember because ordering actually grew in popularity during the pandemic because a lot of times the vehicles on the lot were so marked up, people found that they were able to achieve a certain degree of certainty with the dealer um, by locking in a factory order at something closer to the advertised retail price. And this way the dealer didn't have to worry about having something, you know, a liability sitting and the person didn't have to take a vehicle off the lot. I do think that like the dearth of incentives, that trend will reverse itself. But it actually segues into our next topic, because while you are making a choice to take from the lot or order, you may want to consider the viability of a plug-in hybrid, which is somewhere between a conventional series or parallel hybrid and a full EV. So we had some questions, Alex, about plug-in hybrid fuel economy, and I know you wanted to treat this. Yeah, I, I was kind of surprised about this. <clears throat> Our videos on, and, and as a plug-in hybrid owner yourself, I'm sure you might have heard this with especially the Volt crowd, a um, lot of feedback actually from uh, Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid owners. Apparently Canada is where a lot of Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrids go. Didn't know this. Uh, where folks are saying, you know, oh, it's, you know, our fuel economy blows this out of the water. But this is a a common theme with plug-in hybrids. Many people driving them will often cite their fuel economy in, in combined terms. So they'll say, well, you know, my, my Chevy Volt gets 900 miles per gallon. That's why it's so fantastic. It's like, no, your Volt doesn't. Your Volt gets 30 something miles per gallon, plus you can run it on electricity and you are doing some miles per kilowatt hour on that front. But due to some of the complexities in calculating fuel economy, manufacturers often don't talk about fuel economy on the on-gauge displays the same way, which leads to some very wacky things. So owners of, of Wrangler 4xe's, Grand Cherokee 4xe's, and Pacifica plug-in hybrids generally seem to be upset that their fuel economy is lower than their buddy next door that's driving 
a Lincoln Corsair plug-in hybrid or a RAV4 plug-in hybrid or a Chevy Volt. Because of the way that these manufacturers have chosen to display fuel economy, which is a, a weird, interesting twist. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but the way the Chrysler Corporation companies do it is they try and give some sort of weighted value to the electricity you consume when you're operating in electric-only mode. So if you have a Pacifica plug-in hybrid and you drive it electric-only, the display is not going to say 999 miles per gallon like a Chevy Volt would or like the uh, the Ford Escape plug-in hybrid or the Lincoln Corsair plug-in hybrid that we're driving this week. They will say 30 to 40 miles per gallon because they're trying to give it this calculated value that is somehow similar to the MPGE number of the vehicle and they'll try and insert that into the equation. The Mitsubishi Outlander and the Lincoln Corsair that we are currently driving this week, <clears throat> they just treat it like the electricity is free. They're like, you drove 100 miles, you used one gallon of gasoline, and therefore you got 100 miles per gallon, even though you used some electricity in this process. Um, so for shoppers out there that are shopping for these vehicles, really pay attention to those combined fuel economy scores when operating as a hybrid. And if you are concerned about how much gas you're using to drive down the road, in addition to the electricity, then pay attention to those numbers, not just what your display is telling you. Yeah, the Chrysler way, the Stellantis way is bonkers. I've been aware of it for a few years. Uh, it, I, I guess I don't know what I like better. GM completely factoring out the cost of generating the electricity. I remember when the Volt was pre-launched, they were talking about 230 miles per gallon. I do better than that. I do 250 according to my mileage gauge, but that's the upper limit. It pegs at 250. It won't go any higher. Theoretically, it would be infinite because I don't drive more than 40 miles a day on average. And the only gas I use is the maintenance mode. So, which in case you're not familiar with the car, it puts itself into internal combustion operation. So all of that doesn't atrophy. But there is a cost there. And I think it's important to remember that there's actually two costs when you get a plug-in hybrid. The, there's the much talked about payback period, but then there's the very real possibility that if you don't have the ability to regularly plug it in, and use some of that gas displacement, you might be better off, say, just getting a RAV4 hybrid than a RAV4 Prime. Because at the end of the day, strictly as a parallel hybrid, you probably will get better fuel economy with a vehicle that doesn't have a 400-pound traction battery and you know basketball-sized traction motors on board. You probably will get better fuel economy and pay less money for the RAV4 hybrid, which is why I always say if you want to displace gas and you can charge, get a plug-in hybrid, you will replace the use of gas. But if you want the best fuel economy and the best deal, you probably just get the straight hybrid version if you have one. Yep. And probably the best way to look at the plug-in hybrid is as a mitigation technique. And this is something that, <clears throat> that I would say largely Americans tend to not like the concept of. Americans, we don't, gen as a people, we don't generally go in for harm reduction. We've decided something's bad, we want to eliminate it. We don't want to reduce it. It's like, you don't see commercials for slowing down your smoking. Let's drink less. It's like, you know, no, we have decided alcohol is bad. We need to stop drinking. We need to stop smoking, right? Don't do drugs. I'm not telling anybody to do drugs, by the way, but it's like, don't, it's not, it's not do less marijuana. It's don't do it at all. It's a gateway drug and your next step is crack. That's what we were told as kids, right? You know, if you remember, Absolutely. you know, Nancy, Nancy Reagan on there, it was like the moment reefer hits your tongue, you're going to be craving cocaine. That's how it works. A to B. Uh, and it's an instant process, by the way. It just happens tomorrow. <laughs> Don't tell my next door neighbor that. At any rate, um, you know, but uh, that's, but that's, it, it's an interesting thing because plug-in hybrids are not about elimination. It's, it's part safety net. So you have the backup plan. So you feel more comfortable, even if you never use it. And, you know, honestly, a lot of plug-in hybrid owners brag about how they never use uh, the gasoline engine, which is when I usually say, then why didn't you buy an EV? Because you clearly are dragging this engine around that is doing you no good. But there's a, but you know, there's, but for a new car shopper, sometimes it's the safety plan. They, they want that safety, the safety net because they think that maybe they'll use it. And maybe it's the gateway drug to get them to an EV. Interestingly enough, it could be maybe the next time they'll make that leap because they'll realize they could actually do this. Um, on the other hand, if again, as you're saying, if you can't plug it in, pretty much no plug-in hybrid on a regular driving cycle is going to give you better fuel economy. Very limited exceptions would be if you live in a really mountainous climate uh, or mountainous terrain, rather, then oddly enough, plug-in hybrids can get you better fuel economy. 
in my daily commute where I'm going up and over a 2200 foot mountain pass, the RAV4 Prime does get slightly better fuel economy than a RAV4. Some plug-in hybrids do because you can regenerate all the power going down the hill and there's a little bit of a kick because of that. And generally speaking, most hybrids would be full maybe 20% of the way down the hill. So you get this extra few miles of EV afterwards, but the trip has to be short. And if it's you know too long, then that benefit has just evaporated and you're back to not, not uh, being as efficient. Yeah, I think in general with plug-in hybrids, you're, you're spending a lot of money on not so much, I wouldn't call it a safety net because I feel like primarily a Volt is a internal combustion dominant parallel hybrid. And it does not get the fuel economy that my 2008 Prius did when it's running as a hybrid. I would say if anything, it's got electricity in there for the luxury of being able to motor quietly and relatively cheaply if you drive short distances. Like I think the EV dominant hybrid has already been ruled out as an option on the market. No one's buying range extended vehicles like the Karma or the BMW i3. So primarily what you're buying when you're getting a plug-in hybrid is a gas dominant, relatively inefficient hybrid. You would be better off going off you know, with that standard Prius than a Volt. You would be better off probably buying a hybrid RAV4 if you don't have that mountain pass in your back pocket. Um, and I think at the end of the day, some people buy them because they think they're technically cool, but you will save money buying something that's designed as a hybrid from the outset. Those Hyundai Kia 1.6 liter hybrids are incredibly efficient across the board. Anything with that engine is going to beat the pants off the first or second generation Volt. The Volt was ultimately a, an oddly compromised vehicle because a Prius Prime of the era, a plug-in Prius, they used to not call it a Prime, mind you, but a plug-in Prius was either the, depending on the year, was either the most efficient or the second most efficient vehicle when operating as an electric car and incredibly high operating as a gasoline vehicle as well because it had a relatively small battery, um, relatively limited range, but on both power sources, very, very efficient. And the Volt was really middling under both, uh, both measures because it was this trying to sit right on the middle of the fence. They wanted to give it nearly identical performance in EV mode and in hybrid mode. The zero to 60 time is a little faster in hybrid mode, but they're really, really close. And the 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 behavior of the vehicle on the road, up mountain passes, et cetera, very similar in both modes. And a Prius Prime, absolutely not. You know, the Prius Prime has to turn on the gasoline engine to get maximum performance. And performance in EV mode is considerably lower. It takes almost double the time to go zero to 60 in uh, a lot of Toyota hybrids uh, and plug-in hybrids, when you look at that that mode difference, whether we're in hybrid or EV mode. But the trade-off is efficiency. And plug-in prime, uh, whether we're talking Prius prime or RAV4 prime, actually score very, very well on the EV efficiency side. Yeah, they do well. I think that the problem is always when you have something like a Pacifica, where you might be tempted to get a Pacifica plug-in hybrid. But if you actually look at your driving cycle, you may wind up uh, getting better fuel economy in gas mode just by a standard Pentastore, and that's just going to come down to your needs. No, that's, that's, why... that, that's definitely not true. The Pacifica plug-in hybrid is the exception to this rule. You think like, so? I've oh, seen, yeah. I've seen both results, so I don't know. Let's go with the auto buyer's guide answer since unless, that is the... Yeah, unless, unless you are doing steady state, you know, 50 mile an hour travel exclusively, and that is the only thing you're going to do. The the Pacifica is always going to be Pacifica hybrids always going to be more efficient. And interestingly, Pacifica plug-in hybrid actually, by most most outlets measures, ours included, is actually better than the Sienna when it comes to efficiency. So the bigger displacement V6 actually ends up being a bit more efficient than the smaller displacement four-cylinder uh, in the Sienna. Uh, the Sienna's uh, fuel economy actually was a little bit disappointing compared to its its EPA numbers, but. Pacifica plug-in hybrid, even if you're not charging it in, should get you just under 30 miles per gallon in real-world driving situations. It's EPA rated for about 33, but 29.30 is definitely solidly achievable. And a regular Pacifica in mixed driving is going to be 19s. Yeah, okay, that's interesting because the one application where I heard it did a little bit better was on road tripping, which is admittedly not a common application for a lot of folks who own these things. They are first and foremost soccer taxis not interstate buses. Right. So that is important to note. And I think it's good to put a bow on this because people know I'm famously pro-Pacifica plug-in hybrid on this podcast. If, like me, you want to learn more about the Pacifica plug-in hybrid, where can we do this? 
You can find us at all of your favorite uh, video outlets as Auto Buyer's Guide. So uh, be sure and hit those subscribe buttons and find the appropriate links. And check us out on social media. And if you're listening or watching this video, then be sure and do the opposite. So if you're listening to the podcast, be sure and check out the video so you can see uh, appropriate uh, or inappropriate things like the uh, Toyota BZ4X shirt that we just had. Do you like that? The Busy Forks, get it? The ultimate yeah. driving utensil? Uh, no, I, I like Classic. it. I'm having... it. It would be even better with a spork because it is inherently a weird vehicle. I thought about the spork, but it's the busy forks. There's no S in it. So it couldn't have been the busy sporks. So those are some very busy forks. Thanks to you. Thanks to everyone listening. Thanks to Alex. Time out, Tim out. Alex out. Toodaloo. See everybody later.